one of the things I learned very, very early on was to mirror the person that's in front of you. So a lot of times, and it's very subtle things you, you do. It's, it's, you know, if they're leaning, you know, like if they're sitting towards the table, you, you sit the same way. Or if their arms are crossed, you know, you, you, very little thing to make them comfortable, exactly. You, you should find somebody that likes to do the things that you like to do. Somebody likes, not necessarily like yourself, but likes to do the things that you like to do. And I think with Gordana, I was able to find that person coincidentally, right? It definitely didn't set up. I mean, I had to be in Germany in order to meet her, and I almost never even got there. Hello, and welcome to episode nine of Framed with Love. And this is your host, Rhiannon Marquez. Our guest this episode is Mark Marquez. He's a financial advisor, and as you might have guessed, yes, we're family. Mark is actually my uncle. And I made a recent trip over to Houston to interview him for this episode. I want to share a moment with you on my final leg back from Houston between Atlanta and Toronto. As the plane rose, the sun was setting, and it was as if the divide between the universe and the world was finally clear. The light blue sky faded into a turquoise green, which then faded to amber and into a bold red with a triangle of gold emitting from the sun itself. And as I sat there, I thought, can a moment be love? Can we fall in love with a moment? I believe we can. At least it can remind us why we love. In the same way they say to stare at the stars to remember that you're just a speck in the world and it will all work out. While these colors have bled into each other and the land below snaked in different shades of green, I thought of how often I have felt like I failed at love. How easily one can shift from feeling like someone's entire world to utterly undesirable. And how with each sunset, there's a new chance. I'm sure the confidence I felt in my love for myself had a lot to do with this week's guest. My uncle, Mark who I made a weekend trip to interview, a trip that reminded me of how many forms love comes in, and family, the non-toxic variety at least, is something not to be taken for granted. Mark is a financial advisor, and at this point you might be asking how that relates to the Framed with Love podcast, and that I'm really reaching here. But I disagree. Hate's a strong word, And I try to stay clear of it, but in this case, I hate how people can get elitist about art. How people don't declare themselves an artist or scared to try or to even talk about art in museums. But I want to break down the barriers a little. This interview was different, and I'll interrupt more than usual. And hopefully it won't seem as if I'm hijacking it. But I need to fill in the blanks a little bit about this story. Please bear with me on this different perspective of a creative life being possible in banking. Also, side note, I was super nervous despite this being my uncle. And I don't think I'm alone with the anxiety that family relationships can bring or being extra sensitive to emotions. After all, we want to please those we love. Or in my case, you want to please everyone, but excruciatingly more with family and friends. And I find that To quote Joan Didion, in family, it's a source of all this tension and drama. And there's some nameless anxiety that colors the eternal charges between me and the place I'm from. She says everything beautifully. So without further ado, here's Mark Marquez. 
There's laughter and quiet moments shared between lovers and friends. What would you like? What did you see yourself doing when you were younger, growing up? What did you want to be, and how do you think you got to where you are now? Well, um, I guess I always wanted to be a pilot, and that was flying is is and always has been a part of my, I guess, fascination. You know, flying, traveling—that's why we travel so much. I guess um, just being around aircraft has always been something I wanted to be been a part of. So when I was about 16 or 17, I decided that I wanted to get my pilot's license. I worked at the time in Royal Bank and got my private pilot's license. I think I finished when I was about 18 or 19. With the anticipation that I would actually end up coming to the States at some point to get my commercial rating in order to be able to fly commercially. And that's ultimately, of course it didn't happen that way. Um, for uh, being the last of the five children, mom and dad just couldn't afford to to send me to school, to flying school. Um, So I ultimately uh, decided to venture out on my own, and that's how I ended up joining or enlisting in the military uh, as a way to get to not just go to school, but also to further my flying career in the Air Force because they allowed you as an enlisted member to have practically free flying once you're on base. That did not happen. <laughs> it didn't work out that way. Once I was in the Air Force, I, I could do everything that a, a normal citizen can do at the time. I had a green card. But unfortunately for me, uh, not knowing what base I was going to be sent to once I finished basic training, I got stationed to a base in Tampa, Florida, and McDill Air Force Base, and that base at the time, was tenured for closure by Bill Clinton, who was president at the time. And because the base was tenured for closure, uh, the mission was greatly reduced, so all the planes left. Uh, literally, I think if I remember correctly, the last fighter left the day I arrived. So because of that, the flying school also left. I had a, a good idea I was going to be stationed in Florida, um, but we, I, at the time I had no idea I was going to be stationed there. and definitely didn't have any idea that the base was going to be set up for closure. Of course, it didn't close. <laughs> right now, it's still a very... The reason it didn't close is because it's, it's, that base plays a vital role in the Middle East. So all the wars that are happening in the Middle East, from Afghanistan to Iraq and all, everything else, is run from, from Tampa, Florida. And uh, that was a big reason the base ended up staying open, because it had so many critical generals and all these other big wigs that, are, that were stationed there. So in my last year, actually in my last, I want to say I, was, I got out in September of 97 and, uh, and about August or July or so of that year, the flying mission, the, the flying school started coming back. So at that point in time, it, it was not, you know, I wasn't staying any, any longer. I wasn't going to sign up for another four years. So yeah, but yeah, that's ultimately how I never started flying. I still have some level of, of pilot's, private pilot's license. Um, it's expired now, but I st- that's the one thing. I have to renew it here in the States, and it's, it's a hassle because I have to get my Trinidad version renewed before I get my American one renewed. So, well, I started off living with Deg briefly. Um, when I first moved 
either June or July of 1993. And I enlisted in September. So I went in the Air Force in September of 93. Um, and then when I got out in September of 97, uh, Denise and I were married at the time. Um, so we both, and she got out a little bit before I did. And when we got out, we lived in Tampa briefly. And I went back and worked in a bank um, for a short time until we, until we both moved to California. And that happened, I think, around, I want to say, December of, of that year, somewhere there, thereabouts, so, of, 90, of 97. And then that's when we lived in California, and we lived there until 2000 when we came back here, when we moved to Houston from at that point. Wait, so you were married when you were living in Dex? So we weren't married. Um, in '93, I was living with her just uh, as a placehold for me to go in the Air Force. Um, I worked part-time job with Keith's brother, and he, you know, we were, I was digging ditches and putting up signs and that sort of stuff, just something to make some extra cash. Um, went into the Air Force in September, um, and then when we got, when we both, Denise and I got to California, we got an apartment not too far from Deg. So we we were on our own, but. You know, it's California at that time was and, and probably still is. It's just it's not an easy place to to find work and at least find good work. Yeah. And you had to start. Um, you know, for me, I started up just going into a temp agency and trying to figure out you know what I wanted to do. Long story short, when I got the op- opportunity to move uh, a few years later from from California to to, to Houston. Um, I definitely took the opportunity, and that's kind of how I how I fell into this career field was just pretty pretty accidental. <laughs> um, Kerwin, a friend of mine, uh, he's he moved, he was also from Trinidad, migrated to, to Houston mid nineteen ninety nine, and he he at the time as he was moving up saw mom and dad in the airport in Miami, and coincidentally she had my phone number on her. And that's something she never normally would do, um, especially when I moved around so much and had different phone numbers, and right. you know. But for whatever reason, she had the phone, my phone number, on her that day and gave it to him. Mm-hmm. And once he settled in, you know, on his own here in Houston, he called me. Um, I, I was actually in our apartment on a Sunday afternoon. I was looking through. I was on my computer, learning how to, trying to teach myself how to build web web pages. Right. Like H, I was actually reading. Yeah, HTML, yep. And the book I was using was HTML for dummies. But yeah, that's, that's how we started. He called me that Sunday, and we talked for a few minutes, and um, you know, we, we kind of left the call. I was like, yeah, we, we should plan some time to visit. That was, I, I want to say that was maybe about March or so that year. And then I came in June to visit for a weekend. And um, that, that, so I flew in on a Friday. He took me to the office, and he showed me around. And that evening, we had a happy hour. He made it sound a lot better than it actually was, put it that way. <laughs> yeah, he definitely absolutely me. On, on it. But he wasn't planning to try to get me in the position. He was just, you know, making the job sound way nicer than it actually was. And his manager saw me that evening. Uh, they had a happy hour across the street at the, at the pub. And um, by the end of the happy hour, his managers were trying to recruit me. So basically, he said, if you're anything, you know, like Kerwin, we'd love to have you on our team and, you know, blah, 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 blah. Went back to California that following Sunday, spoke to Denise, and she's like, well, if you want to do it, go and do it. So resigned from my other job. About two, three weeks later, jumped in the car, drove across, and started. And that's how I got in the job. Hey, so 
are you keeping up so far? Mark is the youngest of five, and he came after a bit of a break. There's a 13-year age gap between him and the eldest. And with such large families, there's always this sense of competition and comparison. You want to have equality. You know, one kid gets something and all the other kids are asking, but why did she get that? And when you're the fifth child, often there are a lot of opportunities that you don't necessarily get. And it's also easy to see the flip side of the coin. Sometimes the youngest gets away with more because the parents are a little bit more tired or just the ebbs and flows of life. That's what happens. But as the fifth, Mark had to figure out how to make it on his own. The industry has changed since 2000. And back then, you had to, well, after you go through your licensing process and you study to get your licenses, they pay you a small stipend while that was happening. Mm-hmm. So I didn't necessarily have to go into the office per se to do that, but uh, I could have studied from home, which is what I did. I am not a person that could study with noise around me. So typically during the day, when it, you know, in the apartment, there were cleaners outside and people cutting the lawn, and was, I just couldn't function. So I'd, really, I'd study at night. So when everybody was asleep, I would, that's when I would study mm-hmm. until like four or five in the morning. And then every, that was every night until I passed all my exams. Then once you pass your exams, they, they, you go through a, a part of the training that you have to schedule X amount of appointments. And in those days, your appointments were basically from what we call car leads. And these, these car leads are pieces of recycled paper mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, that people may have... Up- you know, clicked on something at one point in time and it was just generated a name and a phone number or a name and an email or whatever. And you had to call those people. They were cold calls. You had to have a script that we had to memorize and that's how you had to... My role was to get 50, have 50 appointments on the book. In other words, they wanted to make sure that you were proficient and, and be able to schedule meetings and, and whatnot. And then from there, you would ultimately get them to save money with you or invest with you and stuff like that. So I couldn't see myself doing that now. It's, it's the, the turnover rate is, was very high. Um, I mean, of all the people I started with, I think I would, you know, maybe one or two people still, still in, the, in the industry. So it's not an easy industry to get into uh, and stay in. I mean, ultimately, when Denise and I had decided to split up, I changed roles because I got recruited by another firm, J.P. Morgan. And I, I went and worked with them for a couple of years before getting recruited back to the company I work with now. Mm-hmm. Um, and when I came back to, to Ameriprise, uh, I ended up starting working with Kerwin again. And we've been together kind of ever since. Mm-hmm. Um, there was a, a brief three-year bit in between. So between, that was in 2006, I believe, when I came back to work with him. And between 2000 and I worked with him 2009 and September of 2009 I resigned as, and um, moved to moved roles to a training capacity to hire to help train new advisors and new staff people that moved over to our firms from other firms to train them on our culture our systems our efficiencies and how to do financial planning and it was all basically just traveling and training and. and uh, once uh, that job, that role, ultimately, it was based out of, it was, even though I was here in Houston, it was based out of Minneapolis. Right. So it was a corporate position. 
So I traveled to Minneapolis quite frequently. Had to do seminars and, and talk in front of people, which is not, I'm still not comfortable doing that. But we had to lead, lead these training sessions and it, it's nothing, it's something I, I hated having to do, but it's part of the job anyway. And I'm a firm believer in if you, don't, if you want to grow, you have to make yourself uncomfortable. So if, in my mind, it's something that had to be done anyway. It's that initial anxiety you kind of work up to, you work yourself up to just to get into that um, mindset to start what, doing what you're supposed to be doing. But once it was in it, it was not a big deal. We start talking about personality types, and I'm going to try and not project my own experiences, although it's human nature, to draw similarities between your stories. But Mark explains how he's kind of in limbo between the four personality types, and this is very rare. This is called X personality. Personality A likes to be in charge and be in control of their environment and their lives. They're normally very detail-oriented, choosing to delegate to others. And there's Personality B, who's very outgoing, energetic, and fast-paced, and likes to be around people and enjoys being the center of attention. Personality C is also very detail-oriented and likes to be involved in things that are controlled and stable. They're interested in accuracy, rationality, and logic. And personality D takes a slower, easy pace towards their job and life in general. They seek security and longevity. Personality X is an equal combination of many of these things. And I think that it's quite often younger siblings that develop this as they kind of try to accommodate and they often reflect the different personalities they see around them and since there are so many different personalities it's easy for this to happen an evolutionary psychologist once said that it's observed that siblings tend to take different paths from their siblings and this may be explained from an evolutionary psychology standpoint as a strategy to best capitalize on the market for their parents love and affection which is useful for survival. Yes, so I, I think when, you know, you've probably seen these personality trait kind of test things, um, if you're a driver or if you're amiable and that sort of stuff. And I've always fallen right in the middle of kind of those four quadrants. So I guess that the results from me have always kind of positioned me where I could kind of fit everybody. Or my my personality can fit anybody. anybody. So it's, it's it's a unique position to have. Not everybody. So usually some people are drivers, or some people you know too amiable, or whatever. But I, I think I could fit. I've kind of fit whatever's in front of me, or the person that's in front of me. I asked Mark if he thought that his personality type was due to being the youngest of five. I mean, remember those guys are so much older than I am, eh? So yeah. Dagna. I mean, by the time I was. You know, Dagna's 13 years older, so by the time I was functioning as a, as a little boy, she was pretty much ready to get out at Trinidad. <laughs> um, and then Sean, Jerome left very young as well. Jerome, I think, was left Trinidad at around 16 before when he went to Toronto. And then Sean was always studying. And was, you know, so it's really uh, the, the only brother that I, I kind of grew up with is Scotty, primarily because he, even though he was presented with the opportunity to, to go overseas to, to study, he wanted to go back home so he, he opted to stay in Trinidad and um, yeah but I don't know I mean, it could be it could very well be I think ultimately the reason I kind of fit, I, I, I feel anyway the reason I fit in it is because I, I kind of mer- make one of the things I learned very very early on was to mirror the person that's in front of you 
So a lot of times, and it's very subtle things you, you do. It's, it's, you know, if they're leaning, you know, like if they're sitting towards the table, you, you sit the same way. Or if their arms are crossed, you know, you, you, very little thing to make them comfortable. Exactly. I realized I was doing it even though I wasn't necessarily taught it. Until, and then it kind of stuck with me once I heard what I was you know, doing. At the, at the time, during, when I was doing the training capacity, it was really something I, that's, I think that's when I picked up a lot, even though I was training others, I think I picked up a lot of traits then because I was helping train other people. And I was going through all these different courses and whatnot and learning different techniques, um, which ultimately helped me now. Because after not, being in a, not, not having clients for so many years, because you know, after you know working with Kerwin, but I was when I worked with Kerwin between 2006 and 2009, I wasn't client facing at the time. I was more behind the scenes, mm -hmm. doing the, plan, the financial plans and doing all the analysis behind it, mm -hmm. um, figuring out how people could retire and figuring out how they plan for their goals, etc. Um, so that was more analytical than anything else. However, once I started the training role, I was responsible for not just training advisors and staff, but for existing staff and advisors as well. So I, I traveled not just between Minneapolis and Houston, but all over Texas. Um, I was responsible for other guys in a position similar to mine in Kansas and Chicago. So I was traveling everywhere, between here, Louisiana, every month, New Orleans more you know, specifically, and Lake Charles. And that got, ultimately when that role ended, it, it was getting old for me. It was, I was getting worn out on the traveling. It was really only home for maybe a week every month. Um, and of course on the weekend. So it's... It just started taking a toll on me, and then ultimately the role got eliminated, um, and I decided that I didn't ever want to go through restructuring like that again, and not have to be reliant on somebody for for work. And that's how, when at that time, it was, again, things happened for a reason. So when that job got eliminated, a couple of things were going on at that time for me. I had gotten in a car accident in August of 2012. So that la between August and September, the symptoms on my, for my back injury was, were progressively getting worse. And the role was the final day of the job itself of that role was on December 31st of that year. So I, I knew it. So ultimately, they gave me a severance package. And at that time, I, I was barely functioning. I could barely walk. I couldn't put my own socks on. I mean, Gordana had to help me for pretty much everything at that time. Um, and the, the doctors kept prescribing, just basically treating the symptoms and giving me pain medication and pain medication and muscle relaxers and all that, which was not the issue. Um, and so I started working with Kerwin on, on an unofficial capacity because at that time he was transitioning from, from what we call the employee channel in our firm to an independent channel in our, in our firms where we, are, we are own, where we own our business and we are own, basically we work for ourselves. So he was doing that, and I was helping transition. That was between January and March. So I, was, I wasn't technically employed by anyone, but I was uh, helping him do the trans through the transition. We built out an office space. So I was doing a lot of the, the coordinating with the, the furniture, or getting the furniture together and designing and you know, all that inner stuff. Yeah. We started, so I officially became uh, an employee of his in March of that year. And at that time, I was already diagnosed with my herniated discs in my back. Um, so we finally knew what the issue were, was with, with what's going on behind there. And there, there were two discs, but one was so severely herniated that they had to have the operation on. That surgery happened in May. Um, so I barely really started seeing clients again, really between March and May <laughs> when the surgery happened. Um, and 
I think, I can't remember the exact date, but it was in early May. Um, it was an outpatient surgery. Came home briefly, um, started running a fever, called the doctor, said, hey, you know, if you have some concerns, go to the hospital, you know, check in. So that, I think I came home for the week. I think, I, if I remember correctly, the surgery was on a Friday, um, Thursday or Friday, and maybe by, we were back in the hospital for maybe the following Tuesday or Wednesday. Um, and I never left the hospital. <laughs> <laughs> the, apparently there was an infection. Um, they had gotten to the point where the, the infection was causing the fever and stuff. That's why fever after surgery is, is, is a key tel- indicator. Um, and it's, it's something that definitely is a concern for doctors and make sure that you don't get an infection, but I did. The infection was treated by having another surgery to go in and clean it out and whatnot. And they were giving me antibiotics at the time. But because of the infection, I had to now be seen by a, a, another doctor, a specialist for, for the infections. And I think that we were home maybe just a couple days. And, and of course, and, and this whole time I was in pain. In fact, the pain was progressively getting worse, and that's why we didn't think something was, it wasn't right, something just was wrong. So that's, that, that new doctor that was seeing me for the infection, I think on my, our first visit to see him for a checkup a few days after the oper- that second operation, he, we walked into his office. I mean, I can remember like it was yesterday. G and I walked into the office, and he looked at me. He said, open your mouth and stick out your tongue. And I go, ah. And he goes, pack your, go get in the car and go right back to the ER. I mean, that was it. He didn't see anything else. He just, whatever he saw in my tongue, yeah. gave him enough of a concern to say, get right back to the ER. Mm-hmm. And of course, no sooner said than then, I got in the, sat down in the car and I started having like, I wouldn't call it seizures, but like massive spas, I guess. I don't know if they were seizures or not, but they were spasms, like mm-hmm. body spasms, where was, everything locked up. Mm-hmm. And as soon as I sat in the car and that happened, those spasms lasted pretty much all evening into the night. Mm-hmm. Um, I was so heavily, by the time I got to the hospital, I was so heavily medicated. I, I, you know, it, was, it caused so much pain. Um, they couldn't give me anything stronger. They gave me everything that they had mm-hmm. to try to help with the pain. And eventually I was so just exhausted from, from everything, I ended up falling asleep. Ended up staying in the hospital, I think, an additional week after that. Had to have a third operation. Uh, had to have more MRIs, and I hated having to go in the MRI machine. Um, but that was something that I had to do in order for them to see what was going on. Mm-hmm. So the, la- the third time I think I had to do the MRI, I told them I couldn't, I couldn't be laying on my back not, and having these spasms. <laughs> Um, so they had to knock me out, you know, to put me through, through that again. And, and I remember they had to do it on a weekend because they, they literally came into the, the, doc, the hospital. It was a private hospital. So all the, basically everybody was gone for the weekend besides the people that were staying in the hospital. And so the doctor, who's usually off on the weekend, had to come in and do the surgery. I ended up staying another week. They had to insert a pick line into my arm in order to, to administer the antibiotics because the regular IV type of wasn't strong enough. And, and of course, because I had to have the antibiotics intravenously like this, using a pick line, the pick line goes all the way to your heart, basically. And it pumps the antibiotics through your body that way. So that was in my arm for, I want to say, six weeks. And at home, I had to administer the antibiotics. Um, I can't remember exactly. I want to say at least three or four times a day, where it took about two hours each time for it to cycle through. So by the time, you know, after after 
being laid up for the, the, the two months practically, uh, I started going to work as best as I could. It was hard enough just to get in the car to drive 40 minutes to the office. By midday, I was so much, so exhausted and so tired. I, I, I wasn't, I couldn't stay a full day there. So I slowly, slowly got back into the swing of things where I could spend the day. I saw basically the clients that I was seeing at that time were all Kerwin's clients. Um, so in, the, in January of 2015, so roughly a year, almost a year and a half, I guess, later I ended up purchasing a part of Kerwin's book, basically part of the, the book of business of clients. Mm-hmm. And we, really the people I'd purchased were the people that I were already seeing. Mm-hmm. So they were familiar with me and you know, I was working with them for a year and a half already. Mm-hmm. So that made me an independent. I wasn't, even though we were still in the same office space, I wasn't necessarily a part of his staff anymore. I was basically working with, with my own clients, but, but sharing the office space with him and, and the oh, support. Like um, and that, we did that for, you know, between 2015 and this past January, I was able to purchase um, the rest, pretty much the rest of his client book. Um, most of it. Um, a small part went to another advisor in the office who is still in the office and sharing office space with me now. Um, but now I'm now responsible for uh, all the staff. I, so in other words, I pay everybody's salaries now. I have everything under my name. I think what I do love about what I is it's never the same thing. Everybody's situation is different. Um, it is a lot of work and it's a lot of stress. Um, sometimes it, it works me up to the point where I, I get anxiety just thinking about the stuff that I have to do the next day. Mm-hmm. Um, but again, it's part of those things is once you get kind of started, it kind of diminishes over the course of the day. Mm-hmm. But it's a, lot of, it's a lot of work, especially when the markets you know, aren't having a good day. Yeah. <laughs> you know, so it, it, people's, people are relying on you to, you know, manage their assets, their, their, their entire retirement savings. And it's a, in my opinion, it's a huge responsibility. And they can, they can leave, you know. And when clients, I can't stay in business if clients leave. Yeah. So ultimately, you, you, of course, you're providing a service, but you, mm-hmm. in my mind, you have to provide top-notch service in order to maintain clients. And um, I'm all about making sure that their experience is the best that they can have anywhere, than anywhere else. So, Bringing the story back to current times mark left trinidad to pursue his dream of flying he enlisted in the army did his studies and that didn't quite work out as planned while he was there he met his first wife and he married quite young at 25 and didn't fully know who he was as yet and that marriage didn't quite work out but They've remained friends, and it shows how many levels of love there are. And he had to struggle through some uncomfortable jobs, through some hard times, to come to where he is at now as a financial advisor. And somewhere along that way, he met the second wife. They dated for a year, got engaged, married, and it only lasted another year. Love's... Love's weird, guys. But then something magical happened, and the Soka Warriors, Trinidad's football team, made it to the Football World Cup in Germany. And a father-son trip ensued. That's where he met Gordana. 
we just celebrated our 11th wedding anniversary. Even looking back to when I was not well in 2013, I mean, it was just the two of us here. She practically was staying home almost all, all the time taking care of me because I literally couldn't do anything. I mean, it's 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 tough to look back to now because there's a part of my life where I, I preferred not to look back on because it was just so so tough. But if it weren't for her, I wouldn't be here. Probably not. Um, I mean, she was able to allow me or gives me the strength knowing that she's there, right? Um, not just when I was sick, but also to make to make the big moves when it was time to make the big moves. Um, I mean, you're you're taking out loans and nobody wants to be extended, right? But when you're, when you're taking out massive loans like, like what we had to do to, what I had to, excuse me, to, to purchase these clients, yeah. um, it's a big responsibility. You want, and that's why it's so important to me to make sure that those people are now mm. happy and, and doing okay. And yeah. Yeah. But yeah, if it weren't for her, I don't think I be, would have been able to do it on my own, having the reassurance from her, right? So... Um, and then, of course, my extended family that's overseas, right? So having a position like this allows me to, to, to the ability to go home and you know, see family pretty frequently. Yeah. Um, and, and same for her. Uh, so now, as a, from where we were 11 years ago to where we are now, it's completely different. I mean, we came from a... <laughs> I remember when she first moved to the States, we were living in the suburbs in a... 2007 when she when she moved living in a small two-bedroom apartment <laughs> you know um and we've definitely come a long way from from yeah. from that point so yeah. i'm very happy and proud that you know we were able to do it together uh i never we paid it off you know we're debt free well minus the uh, there's good debt and there's bad debt mm -hmm. right so i mean your home is obviously a debt you know, if you have a mortgage but it's a good debt because it's an appreciating asset. So, far, right? so same thing from the business. Um, it's a good debt, even though it's a debt, but we don't have any unsecured debt, for example. We don't have any credit card debt, you know, stuff like that. And that's what I help, that's essentially what I help clients do is to figure out that part of their lives. And that's what I like. It's, I'm, I think I do it well for us. And that's why I like helping people do it for them too. Um, and being de stressed with that, yeah. So for us, you know, we were able to, pay everything off and, and build our lives from from scratch basically and you know after going through you know experiences where I was in debt I don't ever want to go back <laughs> I'd never want to be in a position where I have to do that so unfortunately now in this position allows us to have the cash flow to do what we, we would like to do and to put money aside and bring our nieces over for the weekend <laughs> and you know I, that to me that's golden so so I got married I think I was 24 when I initially married, got married to Denise. Uh, I think for in our relationship, it wasn't necessarily the fact that we didn't care for one another. It just, I th in my opinion, it was just too young for me. Um, and, and and when we were having lunch on Friday, I think I remember telling you, you know, one somebody I knew told me, you know, you you should find somebody that likes to do the things that you like to do. Somebody likes not necessarily like yourself, but likes to do the things that you like to do. And I think with Gordana, I was able to find that person coincidentally, mm -hmm. right? It definitely didn't set. I mean, I had to be in Germany in order to meet her. Yeah. And I almost never even got there for, I mean, that's a whole separate story. But mm -hmm. that, uh, I mean, the fact that I, I, I got to Germany and was able to meet her on the, 
with only a couple of days left on my trip was was again lining you know stars are lining up correctly right so um but yeah the, the i i don't necessarily think I, if if i had to get advice i would probably say you know if you did decide to marry early at least have a longer engagement <laughs> right and the fact that we you know in in that particular instance being in the military it was something that the military it seems in my opinion again that a lot of military members did it for not necessarily the right reasons when you're married in the military and you're living off base the military actually gives you money to live off base basically they'll pay part of your rent for you or if you can find a place to really cheap they'll pay all of your rent for you mm-hmm. it's called basic allowance for quarters and that was a big reason because nobody wanted to live on base so they got married mm-hmm. and have an apartment and make a few extra bucks on the side doing it right mm-hmm. um thanks to uncle sam so you know I, I don't necessarily think that's a reason why we did it mm-hmm. but you know it made it, it, it made it easier yeah. but again we never lived together prior to that either right so it, was, it definitely was some adjusting once we did get you know get off base and, and living together it, it, it took some adjusting to get used to that mm-hmm. but my recommendation would be if you had to do it again at least have a longer engagement and and figure each other out and and, and live together yeah. <laughs> you know have 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 an understanding of what what's what you're getting yourself into what yourselves into because a lot of people you know, when you're dating, you see the best side of everybody, you know? You don't necessarily the, the part of them when you're, you wake up and you're having a bad day or, you know, stuff like that. So, so we were joking about how you, you don't really believe in dating. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so it's funny that you that because you'll date. Yeah, I'm a, I'm a quick dater. Yeah. <laughs> so, <laughs> I guess my next question is why, why you still have, like, such great faith in marriage? Well, I just look back at mommy and daddy. I mean, they've been doing it for close to 60 years now so I, I know it works it's just a matter again it, I'll go back to that one line and you know, find somebody that you're compatible with find somebody like you who likes the things that you like to do I mean I know when Jay and I got together we we enjoyed our we still do I mean we are each other's best friend we hung out together we hang out together pretty much everything we do you know we still have our own separate friends but you know I might go my <clears throat> visit my buddy or she might go and visit her girlfriend but usually we're here and doing everything together the only things we don't go to do together is go to work <laughs> You know, we got ma- we got engaged after three months, and we're engaged and married after nine of our first meeting. Yeah, so I met we met in June. We we were engaged in September of, of two thousand six, and married in March of two thousand seven. Yeah, well, in our case, because she was overseas, we didn't have many options. <laughs> Once we get engaged, and with the type of visa. Uh, requirement you have so many t- so many days after you get the visa stamped in your passport mm-hmm. in which you have to get married mm-hmm. um, I think it's uh, 90 days so you have 90 days from the time you get the visa to till the time you get married mm-hmm. although if, if that doesn't happen in that 90 day period you have to go back mm-hmm. so that was another reason why we kind of had to get married yeah, yeah. yeah. but we got married we, we didn't wait the 90 days we just kind of yeah. got it over and done with so like after your, your second marriage you did, did you ever feel tainted about the idea of marriage? I wouldn't say tainted is the word. I didn't think I would get I would meet somebody that quickly. Well, it wasn't like you know today for tomorrow, but <laughs> yeah, it was probably can't remember exactly the, when I got divorced, but um, it was a few years. No, yeah, that it was just that particular situation didn't work. Didn't work for both of us for that matter. So, and um, but yeah, once we once we met. You know, it, we definitely didn't think it was it was going to lead to this either. <laughs> I can tell you. I mean, on, on our first date that 
that first night in Germany, we were just hanging out kind of thing. And, you know, it wasn't until, you know, I started flying to Germany every weekend, every month for the weekend, at least one weekend a month. And then she came to visit for a couple of weeks in, I think, October of 2006. Um, and that's when we really decided that, okay, we're going to go through with this. Mm-hmm. Um, and then when she got back to Germany, um, she worked, uh, I think, through the end of the year, I think sometime in December, where she kind of she resigned from her job mm-hmm. at the hotel and packed up her stuff, moved out of her apartment, uh, moved in with her mom and dad temporarily, t- kind of, and then she came to the States for Christmas to spend Christmas together. It was just more or less us trying to figure out what we're going to, you know, how we're going to go about this. And she had, you know, she was obviously concerned about, you know, her situation at home is, you know, wanting to make sure she, she wanted to make sure she did everything right. Right. You know, um, she didn't want to just not go about it the right way. She wanted to make sure she dotted her I's and crossed her T's. And, and especially when it came to immigration and making sure we didn't, you know, leave something out, so to speak, Mm -hmm. you know, so. After the new year, I want to believe it was January of 2007, she went, she went back to Germany. And then I came, I followed shortly after to go through the, in, the medical piece of it with her. She had to go and get a physical done and whatnot. So I went there with her to do that in Frankfurt. Um, so it was another quick trip. It wasn't there very long, but you know, went over there. And that was in, in January. And then I think she, I came back and then she finally moved everything in March of that year. So she came over in March and then we packed our bags and went to Vegas and got married. <laughs> yep. And our, initially our plan was we weren't planning to tell anybody, um, at, at least on my side of the family, for, for a few reasons. Um, <laughs> for one, I knew I'd get a lot of old talk, <laughs> right? Um, and two, I was, I was you know, I didn't want it to be a big deal, if you know what I mean. Yeah. I just kind of wanted to, it just wanted it to be us and, I told Scotty, it's our thing, we're doing it on our own. I didn't need to explain anything to anybody. Yeah. I've never, I, I, that's one thing, I've never had to call home. I think I called home once and, and since I've ever left Trinidad, and it was because I had a massive phone bill because I missed home so much. I had a high phone bill, so I couldn't afford to pay it on my own. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's when I was living in the dorms. This was very early in my Air Force. I think mom and dad sent me 100, 100 US, and that was the only time I've ever asked for anything. And it, I mean, not to say that it haven't helped me at, at all. You know, yeah. this is it's, they've obviously got me to this point. They raised me, <laughs> right? Yeah, so, yeah. but I, I, that's one thing I do have the pride in is that I did everything on my own. I went to school on my own. I figured it out on my own. Um, I got my master's on my own. Yeah. Um, you know, I purchased this business on my own. It's, yeah. it's so that part of of me, even as nerve wracking as it might sound, it's something that I I never, you know, I didn't see myself. Ten years ago, where we, I didn't see this, but mm-hmm. I'm glad it happened. Yeah. So, here we are. <laughs> yeah, sometimes sometimes you, the choices were there. And the funniest thing is the choices for me were there before, not necessarily in purchasing, but actually like teaming up, partnering with Kerwin years ago. I had the opportunity before, mm-hmm. and at that time I just wasn't ready. Because he gave me the opportunity. And the thing is, if, if I had taken the opportunity then, I would not have had to buy it. Mm-hmm. He was basically giving me the clients. You know, I missed that opportunity, but yeah. you know, hindsight is always twenty twenty. So, yeah. looking back at it, I'm like, yeah, maybe I should have taken the opportunity. Then. Again, it was an uncomfortable feeling, but it, it was just timing. I was just was not ready yet. Yeah. 
So I was ready now. You know, I know it's a risk that I'm taking. It's a calculated risk. I think, um, I think long term, I will, I will definitely be benefit from it greatly. Mm-hmm. But uh, it's, you know, this early part of it is still so new and still so fresh. Mm-hmm. There's a lot of, you know, a lot of things that could possibly, you know, markets is a big part of it, right? Markets mm-hmm. are a big part of it. So if markets don't cooperate and markets go down or continue to go down, mm-hmm. um, then, you know, clients, it's harder to keep clients happy. So you have to really do a, you know, a lot of hand-holding and yeah. ask, ask, but cheek-kissing kind of thing yeah. to you know, make sure that people are happy and satisfied. Yeah. So we'll see, though. I think we can do it. We have, I have a good team around me, and I think we can do it for sure. At this point, I ask about choosing to not have kids. And this is something that I really don't think gets enough airtime. It can be a really uncomfortable topic because it's believed by so many to still be almost this obligation that we have. But I think it's beautiful when a couple can confidently decide that's not suitable for their lifestyle. I don't know, she's been looking at a lot of cats online lately. Dogs, <laughs> dogs. too, yeah. But <laughs> <laughs> well, we'll see, I don't know. I mean, we have, as we get older, and it's funny the thing that, you know, we met when we were, she was in her 20s still, and I was in my early 30s. So it's, it's hard, it's funny the thing that we're now, you know, we're now both in our 40s. I'm just turned 45, she's about to turn 41. Mm-hmm. And... Even though the people around us are having families and kids and whatnot, I, I don't necessarily think we miss it. I mean, we'd like to, I, I mean, we enjoy kids. You know, when yeah. we have, you know, friends with kids and stuff, we, it's not like you know, her nephew, well, her brother's youngest is a little little baby, mm-hmm. you know, a year and a half, two years old, I think. Mm-hmm. He's cute and she loves him, right? But yeah. time to go home, she jumps on the plane and she flies back here. <laughs> But I think overall, you know, I, I don't necessarily think we, we miss not having. I think it's a matter of, I mean, I, I would, if it happens, it happens. I'd love to have. But, yeah. you know, we, that was something we talked about very early on. And, yeah. you know, something that she she made it very clear to me. So, yeah. it's you know, we just was where we are. Yeah. And that's another reason why we, you know, take the advantage to, to travel. Because now we don't, you know, we don't have a family of our own. Yeah, yeah we wouldn't have that luxury. So, but again, I mean, I look at you guys... You know, you, Andrea, Ash, and all my, all my nieces and nephews, I look at you guys as, as our, an extension of our kids, and, yeah. and, right? So fortunately for us, we didn't have to put through the, do, help put through the school part of it, yeah. right? But, <laughs> yeah. um, we love having people over, obviously. You know, it's, it's like to entertain, um, and we like having good times together, so yeah. it's perfect. So what tips would you give to, to someone, like, buying their own, like, figuring out their way career-wise. Never be afraid to take a chance, whatever that chance might look like. If you think you're, don't overthink it, don't underthink it, right? But don't overthink it to the point where you talk yourself out of it, even though you know it's a good opportunity. Because normally if it's telling you, if it smells like, you know, (laughs) you know what I mean? So if, 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 if it looks like a good deal, it's just you just, maybe nervous about it you're nervous for a good reason right but um, don't get to the point where you're uh, not going to take a good opportunity a good opportunity just because you're afraid of what might happen 
if that makes any sense. Yeah. Because it, it might happen or it might not happen. And if it does not happen or may not happen, then the rewards are even that much greater, personally and probably financially, if that's the yeah. case, right? So, and ask for help. I mean, when, when, you know, if, if you don't know what's, if you have questions, ask the questions. Um, you know, look at people around you that's been done it, doing it or have done it before and just ask for help if you have questions. And, um, but don't, uh, I would always say pull the trigger if you can. You know, don't, because what's going to happen is on 10 years down the line, you're like, shoot, so I should have, the same thing I'm looking backwards now, 10 years ago, I could have said, I should have done it, <laughs> right? Yeah. Um, but, we, you know, I can't go back, so yeah. you just may as well just, you know, chalk it up to an experience. And, but when the opportunity presents itself, I, I strongly recommend, you know, at least seriously considering it. It might be uncomfortable, it might be completely different, it might be alien to you, but yeah. if it's a good opportunity, then take it. What do you, what strategies would you suggest you would do with like the anxieties you get from, from your job? Have a good, have support around you, whoever your partner is or family or whatever, have somebody you can talk to about it. Mm -hmm. um, don't try to think, and this is probably my biggest, I wouldn't say, um, my biggest obstacle for me personally is that I, I tend to keep everything bottled up inside. Mm -hmm. So I don't normally talk. As to especially to G as much as I would like to, especially about stuff that's going on at work, because I know I know, I know a lot of times even though she may not necessarily get what happens on a day-to-day -day basis at the office, mm -hmm. <clears throat> it's still a sounding board that I should absolutely use. And I think I've been getting a little bit better doing that, but it's still something I tend to still keep everything you know inside of me, um, and think I could fix everything on my own. Where you know that may not necessarily be the case, or may not necessarily have to have to be the case. I just have to tell, you know, I just have to keep remembering and telling myself that I don't have to do it on my own. I mean, that's why we're here. She's, she's part of the team, too. She just may not necessarily be in the office, if you know what I mean. Yeah. And one day, I mean, I do have a goal of her being able to um, resign from her position that she is now, hopefully, one day, and, and just we do it together, you know. Mm -hmm. But uh, until that time happens, you know, if we still have to have our own jobs and stuff because it's still too new for me to to fully commit to bring her on board and you know so we have to see maybe the next couple of years or so but you know we, we'll see but I think I think ultimately it will happen at some point yeah. so so she could do her own thing and her own thing and yeah. and focus on that way maybe I could come home earlier some days yeah I know it would probably, probably be weird but I mean <laughs> I, I one thing I do know though is she she's definitely an employee I wouldn't mind having, yeah. right? So because I know the kind of work she would do and it would be good work and she'd be thorough and mm -hmm. and and precise and pay attention to detail. Yeah. Whereas, and she has a vested interest in it, yeah. right? Because it's technically her business too. Yeah. Uh, that's that's one thing with employees. It's hard, for, especially employees that don't necessarily care. Um, it's hard to find people like that that do care, right? So, um, they, you know, they do everything at ninety, at eighty percent, right? They don't do everything at hundred percent. So, and eighty percent has been generous sometimes, you know. So, it's just tough to find people that you think you can trust, and, and especially if you're leaving the office for an extended period of time, you don't know what's happening back there. But you have to believe and trust that they're, they're doing good work. So. So, what did you look for like, when you were training? What did you look for someone that you were like, oh, this person would be worth? And for me, it was always attention to detail. Um, 
And that could be as simple, and this might sound funny, it could be as simple as how you write an email. Mm. I think you, you can tell a lot about someone the way they write an email. Mm. Um, and emails are funny because, again, it's, sometimes it's so personal, can, but you could get a good, in my opinion, you could get a vibe of how that email is written by what the person is actually writing and how they write it. In other words, my emails are usually shortened to the point. <laughs> so it's, it's not like a bunch of fluff and whatnot. Uh, and usually if I find myself having, having to write a long email and stuff, I end up just calling the person. So that way they don't get lost in translation, anything inside the email. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's, I know, again, that's something that most people don't really pay attention to is how emails are written or but I think, you know, for me, it's attention to detail. If, if you're doing good work, I, I shouldn't be getting emails from our corporate office, for example, saying that this thing, something's missing here or something's missing there. You need to redo it. I hate having to go back to clients and asking them to sign something else. Mm-hmm. Um, or we missed this. Can you come back in? And that, to me, that shouldn't be happening. If, before we go and do it on the first time, we need to know what we need to be doing before it's done. That way we don't have to go back and ask them twice. Mm-hmm. So. And like, how are you able to be creative on the job? Yeah, I think uh, for me, it's efficiencies. Mm. I, I read this book called The Checklist Manifesto. I can't remember the author's name. It was uh, Doctor something. It was a very long name. It's hard to pronounce. But uh, that book, it was basically all about creating efficiencies and using a checklist in order to do so. And one, for example, one of the re- because this gentleman is a doctor. Um, it was studies have been done where hospitals were having high mortality rates because of silly mistakes that they were making. For example, leaving, you know, in the operating theater, they're leaving sponges or something on, on the inside of the patient, right? So you've heard stories about that. So this doctor did his research and, and ultimately the hospitals were able to correct this dramatically and turn it around by just having a checklist. Right, and put, putting proper checklists in place. Now, checklists don't have to be long and all drawn out. It could be very, depending on what you're doing, but it could be very short and to the point, as long as you know it. Basically, a checklist is just a reminder. Mm-hmm. So um, pilots use them, you know, for example. So it's just a, uh, that was one thing. After I read that book, it kind of really changed the way I look at how I run my day-to-day things. Now, I, where I do get bogged down is because I have, again, I try to do everything myself. And I need to learn how to delegate, because I've been doing it so long by myself. Now that I have staff, I need to learn how to delegate more to them. The dictionary definition of create is to bring something into existence. So why does that only mean to so many people that you're a painter or a sculptor or a musician? There are so many other ways to create. And this was the first episode where I took a different angle of what a creator is. It can be a financial advisor. It can be the less traditional idea of creating. And with their different outlook on the world, it's interesting to see how perseverance and using your personality type to your advantage Knowing your strengths help you through the hardships in life. Mark has an interesting story in terms of making it on his own. Even though he had very strong 
emotional support from his family. And if worse came to worse, he did have them. And he makes a note how sometimes it's hard for him to open up. And I'm worried this might seem like it's oversimplifying an issue and gendering it. But I do think that there's this toxic idea of masculinity that a lot of men in our society aren't able to open up in the way that they need to because they're scared of how it will be seen and there are very few relationships that nurture this kind of vulnerability for men and I think that we're getting better with it and it's going in the right direction but it's not of course as I said that simple many of us grew up in families where we were taught not to ask for what we needed and were scorned perhaps as only wanting attention it's very easy and normal to feel like we're being self-indulgent and that things aren't that bad or I have it so easy who am I to complain but life's tough and if we're lucky we find a person and sometimes it takes the third try and sometimes we find it in our siblings and sometimes we find it in a chosen family through friendships a way that mark was able to find it and to know how to make relationships work was by marrying other people to help them be more comfortable and we all have our ways of getting through life and making relationships work that in a very related way help us to thrive in our careers please reach out at framed with love podcast at gmail and give us a follow on instagram subscribe share some of the episodes so other people can hear some really strong important messages that are worth getting out there and see you guys next week once again all the music for the podcast is done by zoe hansen there's laughter and quiet moments shared between lovers and friends something in me knows this house won't be a